Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For the past decade, Community Farmers Markets has worked to provide Atlanta with a diverse, interconnected food system, promoting healthy food, sustainable ecosystems, and living wage working conditions. Katie Hayes is the founding executive director of Community Farmers Markets. Later this hour, she'll tell us about the group's expanded offerings. First, move over Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass in honor of Black History Month Dad's Garage released a video recording of Black Nerd, the original scripted comedy by John Carr. The video is streaming through March. John joined Dad's Garage as an improv artist member of the ensemble. He later became marketing director and last year was named artistic director. Now John Carr is the executive producer of the Second City in Chicago, the world's largest comedy institution. He joins us now via Zoom. John, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. I'm so excited. I I was just saying earlier, it just feels like coming home being on here. Oh, it's so good to talk with you. For those who did not get to see the 2018 hit production of Black Nerd at Dad's Garage, would you give us a synopsis of the play? Absolutely. So this was a a show that was loosely based on experiences of my life, but it's uh, just a story of a young man who's Black and has a hard time fitting into the cultural norms that, you know, expectations. He's a nerd, but he also deals with the social issues and everything that comes with being an African-American male in America. And so balancing his two worlds and dealing with feeling like you've disappointed all of your worlds and finding yourself somewhere in between. And uh, that's really what that journey is, is that experience of just finding yourself. And that sounds more serious than comic. (laughs) It it does sound more serious, but it's hilarious. It's a, it's a funny play because I mean, it's dad's garage. 
And so, you know, they're just all the things that happen being a black nerd uh, just kind of writes itself from just being uh, a person who goes to Dragon Con and trying to find the right cosplay because there are only so many black superheroes. So you've got a limited number. So there's just all these kind of fun things. And then I was really inspired with the work that we've done with Dark Side of the Room, where we take classic movies and we kind of improvise what the black people were doing. And so I kind of took that concept and added to the play. And so there's these fun intermissions where we'll talk about a, a classic movie and then show what the scene would look like if a, if it was a, a Black person in those roles and how that changes the story. <laughs> what core elements of the play are factual and which are fictional? <laughs> I think a lot of the essence of a lot of the scenes come from real places, but there are some scenes that are just direct quotes from my life one of the more serious parts of it was just an experience of being pulled over after coming from Dragon Con and that tension of being Black while a simple ticket violation that comes because of experiences that um, I've had and that other Black friends have had and the attention that comes from that. And that's one of those scenes that was, you know, that scene was word for word an experience that I had in real life. And so there are those kind of real moments that we've kind of added to the scene as well as some of those kind of fictional sort of silly nerd culture scenes as well. Hmm. How do nerd and black cultures intersect in this show? Well, I think it really is about the idea of other. It's that, you know, nerd culture is built in this idea of people who don't fit into traditional culture. They were, you know, when you think about like 80s movies and the jocks and and the people who play sports and then there's that section of people that are playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's a very other sort of experience being a nerd. And I think where it intersects is, you know, as a, a person of color, there's always this area of feeling like you're other. And that's where it's similar, but then you also see those overlap moments, those moments where you're a nerd and you feel like you're amongst your people because you all are other. But then there's those moments where they remind you that, oh, that's right, I am Black and I am another other on top of that group, that I'm someone who doesn't 100% fit into the nerd culture. And at the same time, being a nerd, a lot of times you don't feel like you 100% fit into traditional African-American culture as well. And so it's, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also this feeling of never quite fitting in totally in any one area. John, you have another layer, a very interesting layer to add in drawing from your own life. Would you talk about your parents <laughs> and what they did professionally or still do? Yeah, they, they are still rocking it. Yes, I was homeschooled by traveling Christian clowns. And, okay, uh, <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> it was a different, it was a unique way of growing up, that's for sure. I guess it's easy to understand why you were enticed by the entertainment aspect of what they did. How did their religiosity inform your life and your brothers? I think most people have had some sort of experience with it of growing up in a pretty religious household. 
and having all of these sort of rules that are in place because of that. But it also was this interesting thing because we were homeschooled, there was there had to be intentionality behind socializing. It was never, I like this sport, so all my friends are in this sport because we didn't have school. If we were going to make friends, we had to be intentional about going out and finding kids in places that they were, and we had to try things out. And so it's this weird sort of contrast of button down religious experience, but at the same time, there's this homeschool experience and a very improv experience of we need to experience and try as many different things as possible. And I think that's really what has opened me up to so many different and unique experiences because we kind of had to create those for ourselves. Hmm. And do I remember correctly, you grew up in Los Angeles? That is correct. Yes, we grew up in LA and that was that was also a fun experience. <laughs> when viewers tune to Dad's On Demand, they can watch this wonderful re-release of Black Nerd that includes an interview between you and Tim Stoltenberg, who is the interim artistic director of Dad's Garage. Is this recording of Black Nerd from 2018? Yes, it is. And it's one of the big reasons that I'm excited that Dad's Garage is doing this is we've recorded all of our plays with the idea of like, these are going to be archived things that we just kind of hold on to ourselves. But during this past year, it's been a lifesaver for the company because it's allowed us to put some fun things online and why it's so important to continue supporting Dad's Garage in that area. Well, in the interview with Tim, you talk about your years at Dad's Garage. You were the first person of color to join Dad's Ensemble. That's correct. How do you think the organization has grown in terms of diversity and inclusivity in that time period between when you started and when you left for Chicago? I think one of the I guess, looking back on it now, really smart things that specifically Kevin Galise, who was the artistic director of Dad's Garage at the time, he really spent a lot of time being very intentional about diversifying our cast. Even our group, Dark Side of the Room, grew out of the fact that we just had this moment one day where we looked around Dad's and so much work had been done around diversity. We're like, we could do an all-Black improv group now. We suddenly have that option because of not only how many improvisers were at Dad's, but how many great Black improvisers were part of Dad's. And so really being intentional, working to not only diversify, but also set up our people for success, where it's not just throwing someone in to the fire and hoping they can, you know, work, but just taking the time to truly develop, truly have a system from top to bottom that is about accepting, being intentional about bringing in diversity and really going for it. And it's, it's been great seeing that pay off over the years. John, can you talk about Dad's On Demand subscription? Were you part of developing that initiative before you left for Second City in December? Oh yeah, we're, I was definitely part of like the conversations that we we had started beforehand. And it's been great just seeing that sort of thing take off over the last few months. And I think it's one of those things where the idea and the hope is that while this is helping us through this pandemic area, 
that it becomes a thing that always exists in some form or fashion in the future, because it just allows us to get more eyeballs on the work that we're doing here, because we do such great work in Atlanta. And I feel like a lot of times the rest of the country doesn't get to see it. And so my hope is that this grows and is successful so that we can start letting the world know about what we're doing at Dad's Garage and frankly, what's happening in Atlanta and some of the great artists and talent that we have here. You haven't forgotten us, John. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. That's so heartening. Well, we sure miss you, but I know it's for the greater good of comedy (laughs) in our universe. What a joy to talk with you again, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. I really always appreciate it. John Carr, longtime improv artist and previous artistic director at Dad's Garage. He's now the executive producer for all three Second City theaters in Chicago, Toronto, and Hollywood. Black Nerd is streaming via subscription or rental at Dads on Demand. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. For the past decade... Community Farmers Markets has worked to provide Atlanta with a diverse, interconnected food system, promoting healthy food, sustainable ecosystems, and living wage working conditions. Katie Hayes is the founding executive director of Community Farmers Markets. She is here now to talk about some of the organization's recent initiatives. Katie, thank you for Zooming in to join us. Thank you so much for having me. What can you tell us about the partnership of Community Farmers Markets, Fresh Marta Market, and the nonprofit Urban Recipe? Well, I'm so glad you asked about that because it's one of our newest initiatives that we're very excited about. We saw an increased need for food security at all levels throughout the 2020 year. So we've partnered with our friends at Urban Recipe, which is one of Atlanta's oldest food pantries. They used to be located in Grant Park, and now they're housed at the Old Food Bank building. And we worked with them to develop a partnership where we can offer free food pantry staples at all of our Fresh Martyr Market locations. So we've launched our Five Points and HE Homes markets already for this season, and we're launching our College Park Station this week as well. And at each of those locations, you'll find our fresh local food stand, 
that has produce, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. And then adjacent to it, we have our free food pantry. And so families can come and get different pantry staples such as rice or pasta um, to supplement the fresh food that they're getting from the fresh murder market stand. So we're really excited about this partnership because it creates food access for anyone that needs it. It's not based on economic need. The only thing that you have to let the people know at the stand is how many members are in your family. And I believe they ask your age as well. And then there's free food available. Wow! So we're really excited about the partnership because it creates access for anyone. And then in combination, we also offer a snap match program at all of our markets, but this fresh smarter market too. SNAP is a supplemental nutrition assistance program, formerly known as food stamps. And the EBT card is the electronic benefits transfer card that people use when they are utilizing SNAP. And so you can come if you're an EBT customer and swipe your EBT card and get double the value um, at the Fresh Martyr Market too. So if someone comes to the Fresh Martyr Market and let's say wants to spend $20 on their EBT SNAP card, they can get $40 worth of produce at the stand. Wow. Yeah. What prompted the decision to expand your offerings to include non-perishable goods like rice, pasta, and canned goods? We just, we've seen an increasing food insecurity rise in Atlanta, especially during COVID-19. Many more families are struggling to get the proper food that they need to feed their families, and especially when it comes to healthy food options. Uh, We've seen some amazing programs pop up in Atlanta, like the free fridge program that's happening in a few communities around town. Concrete Jungle, uh, a local nonprofit that we work with, has also been doing delivery of of free food. Um, And obviously the food bank has expanded their programs quite a bit. And so we, we saw a need to provide more affordable and free food options um, and also to meet people where they are. You know, one of the biggest barriers in Atlanta to food access is location and transportation. Many people don't have access to a car and, and that access has become even more limited with the increased unemployment rates and, you know, issues surrounding COVID. So by providing these food pantries in the MARTA stations, we're meeting people where they are in their daily commute. Food pantries are another joint initiative between your organization and the partners. Will these be pop-up pantries or will they be ongoing? So the Fresh Morning Markets, um, they each operate one day a week per station right now. So they are more of a pop-up. Than, than a traditional grocery store that's open, you know, every day. But we do plan to expand the hours of a few of the stations, um, starting with our largest station, the Five Point Station. So it's currently just on Fridays from noon to four, but we'll be expanding those hours a little bit later in the season. Virginia Highland residents have something exciting to look forward to, a new weeknight market at the local farm burger. Do you 
have a date for the grand opening of that market? We do. We're very excited to be opening on April 22nd, which is Earth Day. Ah. So we'll be celebrating the, the grand opening of the new Farm Burger location, as well as the grand opening of the new Farmer's Market. And we're so excited to be partnering with Farm Burger and the Virginia Highland District on bringing a new fresh food outlet to that community. Last year, Community Farmers Markets created a virtual marketplace where shoppers could order local organic produce. How did that move respond to the needs of the communities you serve? We very quickly launched an online platform last year to serve the most vulnerable populations in Atlanta. We, I think within two weeks, had built an online platform for ordering and pickup um, and operated that for several months where you could have contactless pickup of farm fresh foods and local artisan products at all of our locations. As more research came out about how the virus was transmitted, we slowly began to reopen our farmer's markets because, as we all know now, being outside in the open air is much less of a risk for exposure. So we we used that platform in the interim while we were figuring out how to safely provide food for as many people as possible. That program transformed into what is now our CFM general store. So one of the one of the things that we found out while people were ordering online is that they wanted more access to products at our smaller markets. So the CFM general store now carries our vendors' products from all of our markets at our smaller markets. So you can always find a, a great selection at each one of CFM's markets. Katie, we are coming up on springtime and lovely weather to be outdoors in Atlanta. Yes. As you return to an in-person model, what precautions will remain in place to keep vendors and customers safe? Well, we've been following the CDC guidelines from, from day one. We think it's really important to work both with the CDC and other farmers markets around the country to make sure that we're keeping customers, vendors, and our staff as safe as possible. We have a, a variety of precautions that we take, and we always keep our website up to date, which is www.cfmatl.org. So um, if anyone ever wants to look at our safety precautions, they can go there. So it's not as much as a, a community gathering space as it used to be, but I still find that I, you know, I get to see friendly faces from behind masks every week. And, you know, for me, it's my only, my only social outing uh, at all these days. And I still, oh. I still find that it's, it's still nice to see see all of my neighbors and community members, even if we're not picnicking and, and catching up on long conversations. So, long term, the mission of Community Farmers Markets Atlanta is to make a sustainable, meaningful impact on the local food infrastructure. How do these new initiatives bring you closer to realizing that? Well, we think that the main barriers to food access are availability. So that's different uh, distribution sites and transportation issues throughout the city, affordability and awareness of the markets. So 
we work in conjunction with all three of those barriers to find solutions to that. So the first is is distribution. Uh, so we try to create as many food access points as possible. And that we do through our outdoor farmer's market locations, but also our fresh martyr markets. In addition to the new Virginia Highland Market that's opening this year, we're also working with our friends at Pittsburgh Yards to open a farmers and artisan market there, which will be launched early summer or late spring. And so we'll have 11 to 12 distribution points this year. And as I mentioned before, the transportation in Atlanta is, is a huge divider, especially amongst economic lines. The Fresh Martyr Market Initiative really meets people where they are, um, where they commute every day. So we try to find distribution points that are easily accessible through walking, biking, public transportation, and increasing the number of sites over time. And then the next is affordability. So we work with our partners like Wholesome Wave Georgia to match the, the SNAP program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, to provide this uh, basically fresh produce for half the price. And we also have other partnerships to create um, educational incentives. Anyone that participates in any of our programs basically gets $5 free to visit the farmer's market. The third issue that we tackle is awareness, and we do that primarily through our educational outreach. Um, we work with place-based community centers like schools and senior centers, after-school clubs, to help educate folks on how to eat seasonally and locally. And a lot of that work has been moved online because of COVID. We're not obviously not going into schools or senior centers right now, but you know, there's been a lot of silver linings throughout this past year, a lot of innovations and adaptations that we've done in our work. And one of those is, is our educational programs. Because we have moved so much online, we've been able to reach even more people than we typically would. So I imagine that in the future, we'll continue to have a hybrid of in-person and online classes. And we're also hoping to build an outdoor classroom at our, our East Atlanta Village space where we can have educational classes whether or not there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> so we're currently looking for funding right now to do that project as well. Well, congratulations on these latest initiatives, the winter markets, and for doing all you do to address food insecurity in Atlanta. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for helping us spread the word about how to access local, fresh, healthy food in Atlanta. Katie Hayes is the executive director of Community Farmers Markets. Learn more about their new offerings and partnerships on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. March is set aside to honor the lives of extraordinary women. Journalist Martha Gellhorn was among the greatest war correspondents of the 20th century, beginning with her work during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, her revolutionary career, and stormy marriage to Ernest Hemingway. 
are depicted in the novel Love and Ruin. I spoke with the author Paula McLean in 2018. So it was just after I finished Circling the Sun, and you know I have to be quite honest, I never thought that I would take up Ernest Hemingway as a subject again after The Paris Wife. I mean, he, during that book, I identified so deeply with Hadley, it felt like I lived in her shoes and in her in her soul. Um, and, you know, Ernest Hemingway broke my heart 900 ways from Sunday, so why would I want to spend any more time with that guy? Um, and so right after I finished Circling the Sun, I was thinking about another historical figure and doing research, and that's when I had this crazy dream that was so vivid and prophetic. I just thought I had to pay attention to it, and I was fishing with Hemingway in the Gulf. Literally? Literally. A, a in sleeping the, in dream. In the dream. Yeah, this vivid dream where I was fishing with, with Hemingway on his boat Pilar in the Gulf Stream, and there was another woman on board who was hand-feeding a marlin that had crested up out of the sea. And in the dream, she turned and faced me, and I recognized her as Martha Gellhorn. I hadn't thought about Hemingway in years. I'd never given her two seconds of thought as a subject. But the next morning, still gripped by the dream and thinking, what kind of woman hand-feeds a marlin (laughs) in dream or in life? I Googled her over coffee and then was horrified that I had missed her, that I really didn't know about the arc of her life or her accomplishments, you know, that she had a near 60-year career as a pioneering, trailblazing journalist, but and also as a war correspondent. She was 28 years old when she took on her first war and 81 years old when she took on her last with the invasion of Panama. Astonishing. Astonishing. Already in her 20s, Martha Gellhorn was very unusual for her era. What was she doing as the book begins? As this book begins, she's really trying to find her way in the world. Her father is ill, and then he dies. And it breaks her because she wanted his approval more than anything else. She had written two books by the time she was 28 years old, one of which was based on her years as a journalist um, going uh, working for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration and going into small towns all over America, hit hardest by the Depression, and writing accounts, interviewing them and writing accounts of their lives and their trials for Roosevelt and for the administration to understand what was really happening in the country. And that book called The Trouble I've Seen made her the literary sensation of 1936. But her first book, published when she was just 24, I believe, embarrassed her, terribly embarrassed her parents. Her father thought it was awful and trite and hectic and um, told vulgar. her... Vulgar. Vulgar, a little <laughs> vulgar. So she hadn't quite found her way. And I identified really strongly with that. She had traveled a lot. She had dropped out of Bryn Mawr after three years, wanting to live life and feel, you know, feeling that college didn't really provide that opportunity. She was born, as she said, you know, wanting to travel everywhere and experience everything and then to write about it. It is important to note that she was from a prominent family in St. Louis. Her father was a highly respected obstetrician, surgeon. Um, She was very close to her mother. She called her the North Star. 
And she managed to find a benefactor, someone who would sponsor her just to live in a great big house overlooking a meadow and write. How did Martha Gellhorn's looks work against her? That's a great question. So that can be a challenge, I think, for a woman in a man's world. Uh, Martha Gellhorn was beautiful and tall and stylish and looked great in her clothes and carried herself with this air of utter, I don't know, she was regal and she was intelligent. But her looks, I think, she looked like Greta Garbo, could get in the way. I think a lot of men made passes at her. Her very first job as a journalist was with the Albany Union Times, and she was mostly covering the country club lunches and the morgue beat as a cub reporter, but only lasted six months there because her desk editor was making passes at her. And, of course, it is the 1930s. Things were not so good for women who wanted careers. A Christmas visit to Key West in 1936 was fateful. Please describe this scene as Marty, her mother and brother, duck into a bar to escape the midday sun. So it's just accidental that Marty ended up in Key West in 1936. Her father had just died. She was spending Christmas with her family in St. Louis, and they just decided it was too sad and too desperate to stay there. So they took themselves to Miami, which depressed them further for whatever reason. And so one day they just climbed on a bus that said Key West on a placard in the window, and neither of them had ever heard of Key West. Three hours later, they climbed out of the bus onto the street with this marvelous, desultory, small village, which Marty loved instantly. And they, you know, came out of the sun into a bar, which just so happened to be Sloppy Joe's, which was Hemingway's hometown watering hole. And there he was, Martha Gellhorn's literary hero, writ large, reading his mail. Would you read that scene for us, Paula? I'd be delighted. Thank you. He wore a ragged t-shirt and shorts that seemed to have come from the bottom of fish barrel, both of which weren't doing him any favors, but it was him. His dark, nearly black hair fell over one side of a pair of round steel wire spectacles. He caught me watching him, and our eyes met for a split second before he passed his hand through his mustache absentmindedly and went back to a stack of letters he was reading. I didn't say a word to Alfred or Mother, just let myself look at him for a moment, the way a tourist looks at a map. His legs were brown and muscled as a prize fighter's. His arms were brown, too, and his chest was broad, and everything about him suggested physical strength and health and a kind of animal grace. The whole picture made an impression, but I wasn't going to trot over there and confess that I had his photo in my handbag, (laughs) marking the page of my mystery novel. I'd clipped it from Time magazine and also the long article alongside it that he'd written about bullfighting. I didn't want to stammer out how meaningful his writing was to me or abase myself by claiming that I was a writer too. While still at Bryn Mawr, I had pinned my favorite quote from A Farewell to Arms above the desk in my dormitory room, Nothing ever happens to the brave. 
It was meant to be a daily reminder as I worked on my own writing, and a challenge too, though I secretly hoped that everything happened to the brave, that life came hot and bright and loud if you flung yourself fully in its direction. In the dark close bar, I tried to galvanize myself to approach him somehow. He was my hero, and not twenty feet away. Nothing ever happens to the brave, I thought, pinching myself and waiting for something clever to come to me, but nothing seemed good enough. Did their meeting really happen the way you depicted? I mean, the bar and then Hemingway showing them around Key West and inviting them home to meet his wife and children. That all occurred. It all really occurred, and I know that from her letters at the time. Different biographers, and she has many very good ones, but different biographers of Marty have depicted that moment differently, and some find her in that moment to be quite um, predatory and, and mercenary, and that she had gone looking for Hemingway to sort of bag him like a kudu, and um, in fact, it was quite otherwise. She, it was quite by accident that she ran into him, and for many, many months, um, they were just allies. He was about to go off to Spain to report on the Spanish Civil War. She thought it was a marvelous opportunity to finally do something noble with her life, and she was always looking for something larger than herself to cling to. And Hemingway knew who Marty was from having read her book. That was quite a shocker to me. Absolutely. Both he and Pauline had read The Trouble I've Seen and found her quite remarkable as a young woman. And she was quite remarkable as a young woman, but she had never been to war before. So when they find themselves in Madrid together, he's really her mentor and he becomes in a way, her best friend, and he teaches her all kinds of things about about war. And of course, unfortunately, along the way, they fall in love, which is, you know, maybe not such a great idea. Yeah, that friendship developed, she's astonished that her literary idol has actually read her own book. And she's determined to go to Spain. She was very impassioned, sympathetic to the cause. She wants to write about the Spanish Civil War. Do either of them realize they're headed for an affair? I don't think so. Later, she admitted that it was several weeks into their time in Madrid that he proposed marriage to her. But I think mostly he thought and told her at the time that she was the bravest woman he'd ever known. And I think he was incredibly impressed by her. The intensity of the situation in Madrid, too, when she arrived in Madrid in the spring of 1937, it was, you know, besieged for the last five months. Franco's army surrounded the city on three sides. The nearest front was a mile walking from the Hotel Florida, where they both stayed and it took daily shell hits, the intensity of that, and she just felt like she was coming awake for the first time Mm. to real difficulty and pain and suffering in the world. And I think that made them both quite susceptible. Now, Marty had connections that were beyond those of most writers early in their careers. Her mother knew Eleanor Roosevelt, 
So this didn't hurt. No, not at all. And Eleanor Roosevelt and Marty ended up really being quite devoted to each other in their lives. And, and Eleanor always worried fearfully for Marty that she um, just wanted her to do well. And they became acquainted, personally speaking, when Marty worked for the FERA and stayed in the White House for a time um, and slept in the Lincoln bedroom. But um, this particular moment in New York when these dazzling writers who were also socially minded, like taking on this incredible, um, I think, opportunity to fund Spain and to try to, uh, you know, fight against Franco and fascism. And and we don't really know much about the Spanish Civil War, but it really was an incredibly noble cause when all of Europe and America, too, was turning a blind eye to Franco's going village to village slaughtering people. And so 40,000 volunteers came to fight for Spain, people who had never been in a war. Now, Marty always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. But at this moment, as she's watching all these literary lions, she has no recourse. She has no credentials as a journalist. She has no job. And she has really no way to get over to Spain. So what she decides to do, and she's always sort of living on her nerve, she decides that she wants to write an article for Vogue magazine about the beauty problems of the middle-aged woman. (laughs) Now she's 28. She has no beauty problems at all. Um, and it w- gets her $300. And so she has passage to Spain, but she has no credentials. So what she does is begs a letter from an editor friend who works for Collier's Magazine, which at that time had several million circulation. I told you she worked for the Albany Union Times as a cub reporter for six months. So this is not, you know what I mean? This is not in her league at all. And she begs this letter from the editor friend saying, you know, Martha Gellhorn is a special correspondent for the magazine. She was nothing of the kind. But she took herself over to France, crossed over the border in the middle of the night from France into Spain on foot, alone. She had the fake letter and she had 50 bucks rolled up and tucked in her boot and no Spanish and only this conviction and desire to be witness to this extraordinary moment in history. If you just tuned in, this is City Lights. My guest is the author Paula McLean. Her new book is Love and Ruin about the writer and war correspondent Martha Gellhorn, who was Ernest Hemingway's third wife. Paula, I almost feel like it's unfair to attach that to the description of Martha Gellhorn when she was such an important figure in her own right. Yet, that identity was at the center of their relationship, at the center of many difficult moments of their relationship. No doubt, no doubt. So what happens once she makes it to Madrid? The Spanish Civil War brings them closer. They became lovers. Yet his success and her aspirations already were giving them cause for arguments. And providing a kind of tension. What's interesting to me is that at the very beginning, they were only allies and supporters of each other's work. They fall in love in Madrid. And Hemingway, as well as being her mentor, 
teaching her all about sort of the nature of war and how to survive in this besieged city was also encouraging her work. When she went over there, she didn't really know. She wanted to be there and bear witness, but she didn't really know what she would write about it or to whom she would send it. She had no, as I said, no credentials, no formal post there as a journalist. And as she watched what was happening in Madrid, she became more and more drawn to the stories of ordinary people. And while Hemingway and his fellow mostly male journalists were off in the trenches reporting on battle statistics and tactics and artillery and all of those things, she was doing something that actually never had happened in journalism before, which was paying attention to the ordinary stories of the people there whose lives were being ripped apart by war. The women waiting in you know, lines for all day for bread, or the children who were walking to school through the streets through trails of blood. And, and this was what she was drawn to, and she began to write about that. Ernest encouraged her to send her first piece to Collier's Magazine, where she had the fake letter from, and they took it immediately, and then they took another, and suddenly she was on the masthead, and very quickly, within six months, she went to, you know, from being a war tourist or a fraud as a correspondent to being one of the most important voices coming from this war, and, and it really did. She changed the face of journalism, and although... At the beginning, he admired her courage and her independence and this, her spirit and her, and her, all of this, her bravery and, and her writing. When Spain fell and they both went to Cuba to begin writing their books, then they began to be at odds. Mm -hmm. You know, his work took everything over and she was struggling. He was working on For Whom the Bell Tolls, which would become his, you know, Spanish Civil War masterpiece and sell more books in that day when it was published in 1940 than any other book in history save Gone with the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) And she, of course, was struggling to write a novel, too, that almost disappeared the moment that it, you know, hit the shelves. No matter what else happened going forward, Ernest and Madrid and this awful, marvelous war were tangled up inside me like the story of my own life. I wouldn't keep them. I couldn't, but they were mine. After Spain, Gellhorn spent the better part of the year traveling through Europe and writing more pieces for Colliers. You mentioned a moment ago that she changed the face of journalism. Was that what we refer to as human interest stories? Absolutely. I would say that she always, she was born with a loud social conscience. You mentioned her father, who was a prominent obstetrician and gynecologist in St. Louis. Her mother had always been involved in human rights and women's suffrage. And, you know, they were very, not just liberal-minded, but fair-minded and active in their social views. They took steps. They did things. And she was always going to be that sort of person. That being said, I think she was very surprised to go over to Spain and find herself completely borne away into this career. And when Spain began to fall, Collier sent her, you know, throughout the countries of Europe, sort of basically taking the pulse of those countries that were about to fall into the shadow 
of fascism. And, you know, all these nations are tumbling toward World War II. That All the journalists on, on hand in Spain at the time sort of predicted that this would happen if no one intervened because Franco is forming these terrible alliances with Hitler and with Mussolini. And these were dark times and suddenly Europe was a very different place. And I think she lost some faith about, I don't know, she's, she, and some love, lost some love for Europe. And, and all these people were like, you know, burying their head in the sand, mm -hmm. not sort of not paying attention. As was FDR, she As thought. was FDR, who she, you know, considered to be a friend and an ally at many points in her life. Paula, what happened when Gellhorn joined Hemingway in Cuba? So this is my favorite part of their story. And so when Spain fell and the world was falling to pieces, Hemingway decided he wanted to go to Cuba to begin this novel, which would become For Whom the Bell Tolls, away from the pressures of family life. And he asked her to join him, basically saying, you know, the world might not be here tomorrow, but who would I rather have in the foxhole than you, the bravest woman I've ever known? And you'll write a book, and I'll write a book, and we will care for only each other and tend our own campfire and 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 love each other's books like children and he was living in one hotel and writing in another in you know absolute squalor because he was quite a pig and she <laughs> turned up saying you know I haven't traveled half the world to be your mistress in a pigsty and so she went looking for a house and she looked at the Havana want ads and found an abandoned 15 acre farm about 13 miles outside of Havana, and went to look at it and fell madly in love. And it had been, you know, in ruins. It had been abandoned for many years, but she saw this potential. And she just decided that this was something that she was going to love. She was going to put down roots for the first time in her life. She was going to try for something, for domesticity, for stability in love, for real companionship and and she had this dream. She would love this house. She would save it as she hadn't been able to save Spain. And she was going to try for something as a woman and as a writer to have both of those things alive in her simultaneously. And what a different world. He still had not told his wife about the affair, much less that they were living together in Cuba. How did... Spain's loss help her rationalize her relationship with Hemingway? I think the world really was falling to pieces and nobody knew what would happen next, only that it was going to be terrible. So all the regular rules didn't seem to apply anymore. And, you know, it's obviously not a, a wonderful story. She didn't like it either, that she happened to fall in love with a married man. It was a condition, you know, great risk to her, too, to travel there, to not know what was going to happen next. He said he loved her. He was making these promises, but he was still very much married and a father to three sons. And whom, she felt exactly. Whom she adored. Would you tell us about her relationship with his son? 
Absolutely. So the first son is John Hemingway, who was his son with Hadley Richardson. And in The Paris Wife, he's a baby and like two years old when the novel ends. And they call him Bumby. That's his nickname. In this novel, John is 15 and 16 years old when Marty first meets him. And they really are such great friends and wonderful companions for one another, Marty and and, and the grown-up Bumby, the teenage Bumby. And then Hemingway had two other sons with Pauline, uh, Patrick and Gregory, or Giggy, and they are, I think, five and eight when the novel begins, and they really become these three boys, her children, her stepchildren, and she feels very close to them. But it was really fun for me to get to revisit Bumby's life and to see him growing up sort of under my nose and to see Marty struggle with the challenges of this new instant family and also how does she manage her career and, you know, being Hemingway's, you know, lover during this time and not his wife and not knowing really where her position lay. Can you tell us about Gellhorn's life after World War II? Absolutely. So when her marriage to Hemingway ended bitterly in 1945, she stayed in Europe. She had lost her credentials. She basically traveled passportless, attaching herself to various regimens. And um, she was there at one of the very first journalists on hand when they liberated Dachau. She went on to report on every literally every major crisis of the 20th century. As I said, she was a reporter going to war, taking herself to war, even when she was 80 years old. And really, I don't know, she just literally devoted the rest of her life to giving voice to the voiceless. In the author's note, Paula, you say that we can't have enough heroes like Martha Gellhorn. Thank you for giving Gilhorn wider recognition as a hero for our time. Thank you. This has been delightful. Author Paula McLean discussing her 2018 novel Love and Ruin. Her other books include Circling the Sun and The Paris Wife. Paula McLean's new novel is set to release in early April. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Summer Evans is City Lights' producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE at Latter's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.